Our sermon text this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through uh, 28, and you can find it in your pew Bible on pages 829 and 830. Hear the word of God. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, Do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east, And shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. Let's pray together. All all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father, you now will minister your word in the spirit for the glory of your son and the good of his people and the saving of the lost. And so we 
renounce on both sides of this pulpit any sufficiency to communicate or to comprehend in ourselves. We thank you for the promise that you are jealous for your son's honor and you are eager that he be glorified and that your word always succeeds in the thing for which you send it. So I am full of expectation that you will bless, you will teach, you will correct where it's needed, you will reprove where it's needed, you, and your goal is to take your children and equip them for every good work, and your goal is to save the lost. And so, Father, please do this work and help all of us to honor you as we expect and watch you do those things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, the cross is the key to every aspect and every season of the Christian life. It's the cross that converts us at the beginning of the Christian life. It's the cross that keeps converting us throughout the rest of the Christian life. The cross that justifies us is the same cross that sanctifies us, and that is the same cross that glorifies us. The cross is not something that is in its significance, is limited to one phase or chapter of the Christian life. And this is why Paul says what he does to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's why Paul says what he does to the Galatians in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me, far be it from me that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which I have been crucified to the world, excuse me, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Yeah, we know this, and yet we know that we don't know it. I mean, the cross, if we're honest, is well known to us, and yet we have to be truthful about this, and yet is in such large measure unknown by us. It's familiar and unfamiliar to us at the same time, isn't it? The cross is simple enough. This is so amazing to me. The cross is simple enough for a child to grasp and yet complex enough to always elude our mastery. The cross is like an endless ocean. And The horizon, its horizon is always going to stretch out infinitely ahead of us, beyond our reach. We will never get beyond its horizon, and its depths are infinite as well, and we will never finish exploring them. The cross is like the tallest mountain of all mountains, and God summons us up to its summit, because that's the place, that's the only place on planet Earth where you and I can finally see the truth about who God is, the truth about who we are, the truth about the meaning of human history. The cross is the greatest of all battlefields, which has been hallowed by the blood of the greatest champion who gave himself to protect his people, to defeat all their enemies. The cross is the ugliest and the darkest and at the same time, the loveliest and the most beautiful thing that has ever happened on planet Earth. The cross is the greatest injustice ever committed and it is at the very same time the greatest justice ever rendered on planet Earth. The cross is God's self-portrait. It is a work of sacred autobiography. It is written in the indelible ink of Jesus' blood. It is God explaining God to the world and then applying 
that applying that autobiography, as it were, to men. Yes, the cross is the key to the Christian life, and we all need as much help as we can possibly get to understand it and to keep understanding it. It's as simple as can, can be absorbed by a child and yet complex enough to humble the mightiest and most intelligent of adults. The cross is far too important to God and he knows to us for him to leave us to fend for ourselves in trying to understand it. And so he gives us much help. He gives us, this is why he's given us the Bible so that we will understand or make a beginning of understanding because we will never finish understanding. In his kindness and grace, he's given us the Bible, which from beginning to end is one glorious extended meditation on the cross. That's what the Bible is. Throughout the Bible, then he is providing us, he's training our vision. No matter where you are in the Bible, if you're in the Old Testament, he's training your vision to help you anticipate the cross giving you illustrations ahead of time that will unlock its meaning. And if you're in the New Testament, no matter where you are, he's explaining the cross again to you. And everywhere you are, or we are in the Bible, God is equipping us with tools to train our vision in order to understand uh, the the meaning of the cross. And though there is a great diversity Uh, um, uh, just an amazing diversity in the tools that God uses, promises and pictures and images and types and themes and all these things that God uses to teach us the cross. What's amazing is that for all their diversity, they speak with a single voice. Which brings us to Matthew 24. And Jesus' promise in verse 2 to his disciples that, that Herod's temple will be utterly destroyed. And that's an event that ultimately was completed in 70 AD. Now, this is the second week that we're thinking about this, and let me tell you why. I mean, I have no interest in equipping you or myself to compete in some kind of Bible trivia game. There's only one reason that I think it's worthwhile for us to linger and invest the time congregationally to think through this whole image of the destruction of the temple. And that reason is this, because when Jesus, as we began to see last week, when Jesus is teaching about the temple, he's teaching about himself. and the meaning of his ministry, and the proper interpretation of his ministry. And when he teaches us about the destruction of the temple, friends, he's teaching us about the meaning of his cross. Jesus' promise in verse 2, when he says to his disciples that essentially Herod's temple, not even one stone is going to be left on one another. That, friends... If, if all you think that is, is just Jesus with his foreknowledge of the future, seeing an event that would be relevant to the disciples in the future and then predicting it so that they later on would say, oh, I guess he was God. If you think that's all that Jesus is doing, you miss the point. It's not just a prediction of some future event. It's not a prediction of what the Romans will do in 70 AD. It's an explanation of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. It's an application or an illustration of what Jesus is going to do at the cross. And I'm like you. I want to learn as much as I can about the meaning of the cross, as much as Jesus is willing to teach me. So let's go back uh, to John chapter 2 because I, it's so important. It's on page, uh, page 887 in your pew Bible. So if you go back to John chapter 2, because I, I know some of you are unpersuaded. You're like, what are we doing? Well, you might still be saying that at the end of the sermon, but I hope not. 
Okay. John chapter 2. So, so remember, Matthew 24 is at the, essentially at the end of Jesus' public ministry, and he's talking about the destruction of the temple. But we saw that that's not the first time Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple or temple destruction. He, the first time he talks about it is at the beginning of his public ministry in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 2, verse 19. He's just cleansed the temple for the first time, and the Jews are a little bit taken aback by that, and so they demand from him a sign to prove that he has the authority or that he's entitled to cleanse the temple. I mean, how dare he? And they say, what sign do you give us of this? And what Jesus says is just absolutely shocking. Look at verse 19. The sign that he proposes to give them is this. Destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. Now, John goes on to say that though the disciples didn't understand it at the time, and though uh, the, the Jews didn't understand it at the time, Jesus, it was clear to the disciples after Jesus was raised from the dead that he was talking about the temple of his body. And so I want you to notice this, that at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, he's connecting his ministry with the temple. He's front-loading his ministry, his public ministry, with the authoritative interpretation of his public ministry. He's not going to conduct his ministry and then leave it to the disciples to scratch their heads and say, okay, well, what was that about? It's too important And so he's describing his ministry in temple terms, and it's very remarkable. There's three main things in what he says in verse 19. First, notice incarnation. His his body is the temple. Incarnation. The dwelling of God. His body is the dwelling of God, the dwelling place of God. Secondly, so he's the final temple. His body is the final temple. Of God, that's amazing. And secondly, notice, his body, this temple, is going to be destroyed. What do you think that refers to? The cross, crucifixion. But notice, this destruction is not a final destruction because in his tree, he's also promising triumph. He will not be defeated. In fact, that destruction is going to be a tool of his triumph because he's, he's saying, in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And that's his resurrection. Now, it's just staggering to think about all the, the, the biblical data and the biblical themes and all the stories that Jesus just sweeps together and says, these are all about me. I mean, it's awesome. He's saying Leviticus is, he's saying everything in Exodus where God is giving the design of the tabernacle, that's about me. Everything in Leviticus about the sacrifices and the offerings and the priesthood, it's all about me. Everything in 1 Kings about the building of the temple and the way it's decorated, it's all about me. And you say, well, sure, Jesus understood that because he was God incarnate but nobody else understood it. Wrong. Think about John the Baptist. One chapter earlier, he sees Jesus coming, and what does he say to his disciples? He looks at Jesus, and this is what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, John got it. John John's vision had been trained by the temple and the tabernacle and the word of God to understand. Think about what John's saying. When he's looking at a man and he's calling him a lamb. He's looking at a man and he's saying, hey, here's the meaning of that man. He is going to bear the sin of the world. He's going to carry the sin of the world away. How's he going to do that, John? by giving himself as a sacrifice because that man is a lamb. Spotless. Well, whose idea was that, John? Did that originate with man? Was that plan to carry the sins of the world away? Man's plan that then was proffered to God in a proposal for peace? No, he's not just a lamb. He's the Lamb of God 
he is God's provision of a sacrifice to carry away the sins of men. See, John got it. John got it. And so this morning, what I want to do with you, last week we thought about the temple design and how the temple design is the gospel storyline, right? Paradise lost, paradise regained, a way into the presence of God, uh, provided by God. But this morning I want to think with you about the the next two elements in what Jesus says in John 2.19. Not just the fact that Jesus's body is the final temple, but the destruction of that temple and then his raising of the temple. And both of these... I hope to show you, are windows onto the meaning of the cross. So our first heading is going to be the cross according to the temples God destroys. And the second heading, and I know it's a long introduction, but this is, this, I just believe this is so important, friends, to understand the cross so we don't play games with this. And, you know, if, you, if the cross, if you think you've got the cross, this is why this is so important. If you think you've got the cross, you know, what the, you know what the implication of that is? You think that you've gotten God. And his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we need to, we need to, learn as much as he is willing to teach us. So, okay, let's do the, let's do the first heading about the destruction, uh, God, how God destroys. Uh, uh, well, we learn about the cross according to the temples that God destroys. And I said temples, plural, because there are three temple destructions that are woven together in the Bible. And the first of them is the destruction of Solomon's temple, which we're going to think about in in a moment, that happened in, in about 586 B.C. And the third temple destruction is the destruction of Herod's temple, which happens in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And the second temple destruction is really Jesus' crucifixion. And I, I want to, what I'm going to encourage you to do this morning is to think about te- the destruction of Solomon's temple as kind of the prologue to the cross and the destruction of Herod's temple is kind of an epilogue, okay? And they both fill out, one and three, both fill out our understanding of the cross. So let's think first about the destruction of Solomon's temple and the meaning of the cross. And again, I just, I just want to come back and say the value, the, the urgency of knowing this history is this. It illuminates the cross, Okay? And other than the fall in Genesis 3, there is no event in all of the Old Testament as traumatic as the destruction of Solomon's temple. I mean, it is the problem. It is, it, it's just staggering in its implications. It's amazing how much real estate in the Old Testament is set apart for the prediction of and the threats about and the meditations on and the, and the reflecting upon afterwards on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It is massively important. The pie slice that is given to that event is enormous. And, and again, the destruction of Solomon's temple is instruction about the cross. So what actually happened? Well, you, you know from reading 1 Kings that uh, Solomon uh, builds the, the Lord's temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, the, the dedication of the temple is described. And it's a great day. Um, and Solomon gives this just wonderful prayer. And the glory of the Lord comes into the, into the Holy of Holies with such fullness and such power that the priests have to retreat from the temple. It's just absolutely breathtaking. But something very sobering happens right after that. And it happens in 1 Kings chapter 9. And so turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 9. I want you to see this. And this is on page 290 in your pew Bible. 1 Kings chapter 9. Uh, starting at verse 6. 
So the Lord, this is now the second time that the Lord has appeared to Solomon. I mean, you think, you know, if you're Solomon, you think, I, I did good. It was a great day. And right away, the Lord issues a very sober warning. Look at verse 6 with me. He's speaking to Solomon. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house, that's the temple, and the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done uh, done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. It's very sobering. You know, the, he, he inhabits the temple. His presence is glorious. And instantly, he uh, issues this warning to Solomon and to Israel through Solomon not to confuse the temple for their possession of God. They don't have him in a genie's bottle. He's God. And tragically, everything that God describes in this warning occurs in the following centuries. The longer Israel lived in the land, the greater its unfaithfulness to the Lord became. It didn't improve. There, you know, if, if you believed in evolution, uh, Israel's history would be a big problem for you. <laughs> Israel does not improve morally, even though it has access to the best information on planet Earth. And her unfaithfulness spread from the top down and from the bottom up. And they ignored centuries of God's forbearance and persistent warnings and ultimately provoked the Lord to send the Babylonian armies to destroy Jerusalem and to burn Solomon's temple to the ground in 586 and carry away a remnant from Judah into exile. Now, you can read more about that if you want this afternoon in 2 Kings 25. Now, I want you to think about how radical that is, the temple destruction. See, it doesn't matter to us, but remember how I began last week asking you to think about what would it be like for you as an American if invading armies came in and burned the White House to the ground or blew up the Capitol? What that would do to you? And, and you know, those things, those are nothing at, at, at one level compared to the temple because we don't think God lives in those places. So I want you to think about how radical, just, just ponder for a moment how, how, how troubling the destruction of the temple. And not just that it happened, but that God said it would happen, and it did happen, so that God is the primary actor in this. The Babylonian army is his servant. The Lord is willing... The the temple was the place where God caused his glory to dwell, where he was enthroned between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. And And on the basis of Israel's sin, because of his people's unfaithfulness, think about it, he was willing that his glory would be trampled. He was willing that his temple would be defiled and desecrated. Why? Because of the sins of his people, he was willing for it to look like he was a weak God and that the pagan Babylonian gods were stronger. He was willing, the, the one who, would, who, 
whose holiness would barely allow the entrance of the high priest into the Holy of Holies for a matter of minutes, once a year, and not without blood. He was willing for pagans to barge into the Holy of Holies and then burn the place down. God is complicated. He's willing to leave his temple exposed, unprotected, vulnerable in consequence of his people's sin. You know, this morning I was reading Ezekiel 24 in my devotions, and Ezekiel is ministering in the exile, and God comes to him one day and says, Hey, I want to let you know something. Which he would not have known because he did not have CNN. The siege of Jerusalem has begun. And I want you to tell the exile community. And then God says something remarkable. He says, I will profane my sanctuary. What? No, no, no. I thought you said the Babylonians will profane your sanctuary. No. God says, I will profane my sanctuary. Why? Was it, was it pure before that? No, friends. The reason God was willing to profane his sanctuary is because his people had already profaned it. It was simply to make visible to them what the consequences of their sin were. So the Babylonian army is really just mopping up, as it were, after what Israel has already done, after what Judah has already done. Judah has already defiled the temple. And the Babylonian army just comes in to make it totally clear what they've done. Now, you know what's, what's, what's very interesting to me is that it's the Babylonians whom God sends to do this and inflict this judgment. Because you know who the Babylonians were? The, the other main name that the Bible uses to refer to the Babylonians is the Chaldeans. Does that sound familiar? Because there was somebody else who was a Chaldean a long time ago. Do you know what his name was? Abraham or Abram. Abram who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now I want you to think about it. What it means that God is sending the Babylonians in to destroy the temple and then carry them away to carry the his people into exile, it's like, it's like God is literally unwinding the covenant relationship between his people, taking his covenant people back to square one, giving them exactly what they seem to want because of their repudiation of him. It's a breathtaking judgment. Now, what does this have to do with the cross? Well, what did occur in the destruction of Solomon's temple on Mount Zion was a preview. It was preparation for what would occur in the destruction of the final temple on Mount Calvary. The deepest logic of the destruction of Solomon's temple and exile is Jesus' own destruction and exile in his crucifixion. Friends, Jesus was the final temple. He was the word made flesh. In him, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. And God was willing that he be desecrated and defiled. Do you know what that is? Do you know what happened there? What happened there is that the holy of holies was willingly made the unholy of unholies. What happened there was that God himself in the person of his son was willing to be trampled by the sins of his people, was willing to be ransacked was made vulnerable, was exposed to the consequences of his people's sin. That's exactly the same plot line that was previewed when Solomon's temple was destroyed. He is run roughshod over on the cross, and it is God's design to profane his sanctuary because the defilement and the desecration that Jesus bore on the cross was ours. It was our sin that did that. 
He was defiled. He was desecrated. He was exiled and endured on the cross the, 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 the eternal exile that the 70-year exile of Judah, it was just a dim preview of. This is why Jesus cries out, why he takes the words of Psalm 22 on his lips while he's being crucified. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's like a radioactive covenant term. That is a word that describes what happens to somebody who is deemed the ultimate covenant breaker. And he was the ultimate covenant keeper. He's the only covenant keeper. What the Lord warned Solomon would befall the temple building pointed forward to what would befall willingly, willingly befall Jesus on the cross. God's own beloved son was made a heap of ruins on the cross. God was willing that his glory would be stripped willing that he would be mocked, willing that people who were wicked would exult in apparent triumph over him. God was willing that his son, who is the final temple, would be shamed and violated and ultimately destroyed. God was willing that the world would look upside down in order to set it right side up. Yes, God said, behold, I will profane my sanctuary. Which is what he was willing to do at the cross. And what he did do at the cross. And like the temple's destruction, friends, you know what the cross is? The, you know, when the temple was destroyed, let's go back to Solomon's temple for a minute. When the temple was destroyed, God was holding up a mirror to Judah and saying, you've already destroyed it. You've destroyed through your unfaithfulness and your sin and your idolatry, you've destroyed what this temple was designed to be. You have broken the covenant. But it was also a window of the ultimate judgment that awaits covenant breakers. And the cross is exactly the same thing. You've got to understand both of these aspects of the cross. The cross is a mirror and it's a window. Okay, so if you're a non-Christian, it's very urgent for you to understand both of these things. The cross is a mirror. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is that in Jesus' crucifixion, God is holding a mirror up to every human being, saying, this is what, this is what sin, well, this is who you are. Those are, that's your defilement. That's your desecration. I made you in my image. I made you to be my temple. I made you to live for me and to display through your life the truth about me. And now in the crucifixion of my son, let me show you what you have made of yourself. You have defiled the temple. You have desecrated the temple. And you say, what are you talking about? Well, think about how the prophet Isaiah describes uh, the suffering servant, chapter 53. He's he very interesting what he says. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And, and Isaiah's not describing his sympathy there. Isaiah's describing the fact, and, and, and the next line is, yet, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, Isaiah is saying, the truth about the cross is it was a mirror. It was a mirror that God was holding up to us in the crucifixion of the Son, saying, this is, I need to show you what sin has done and what you have done to yourself. But the interpretation of it was, oh, he's a bad guy. Yet we, uh, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That's why, as Jesus was being crucified, he was surrounded by people who were mocking him and deriding him and saying, oh, son of God, save yourself, come down from the cross. Why the Roman soldiers put purple robes on him and then beat him around and spit in his face and said, prophesy, who slapped you? 
because they all assumed that his suffering was not about them. But Isaiah goes on to say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Friends, the cross is a mirror that God holds up to you and it says, look, his suffering is your story. His desecration is your story. His defilement is your story. But the cross is not just a mirror. It's also a window that you look through. That's a preview. Because at Calvary, what God did is he brought the future into the present. And he gave us a window of the judgment that will fall on men who do not accept his offer of amnesty in Jesus Christ. He brought the end all the way into the middle of the story and opened up a window to say, see what the consequences, this is the end of the road. The cross is a window to the end of the wide way that leads to destruction. And God wrapped it around in a big gracious U-turn and said, let me show you where this road ends. Let me show you think. You th- that's why the fool, it, it, the person who says in his heart there's no God, the Bible says that person's a fool because no one escapes accountability to God. We're all going to appear for, before him. We all have to give account of ourselves to him. And God in his mercy brought that future into the present at the cross and said, look at this. To live in a way that's estranged from me, unrepentant, is suicide. And look at the lamb I've provided. And so the temple, the destruction of Solomon's temple is like a prologue where we see what God is willing to do. I mean, God, friends, you know what? You know what struck me this week? And I just don't know what to do with this. The cross means that the most glorious being in the universe is the most humble being in the universe. And that just, that does not compute with me. And the reason it doesn't compute is because pride is my operating system. Which is exactly the problem. Because God is not proud. The cross is not an exception to the rule of how God operates. It's not like God is... God is glorious, and then for purposes of the predicament and situation of man's sin and God's desire to be both, the ju- both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, it's not like God says, okay, although I'm completely holy, I'm going to situationally adjust in love and out of grace and rescue sinners by making myself nothing and taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like that's some new idea that God has. Friends, it is the ultimate explanation of who God is. What has God been doing from all eternity? What is the Father? This is what the Trinity means. This is the most logical, at one level you look at the cross and say, it's the most illogical thing in the world that the greater would take on the the cause of the lesser and give himself away for the cause of the lesser. But friends, the, the, the nature of the Christian triune God is that it is a community. And in that community, from all eternity, all three persons have been... It is their nature to give themselves up for the other. So the cross is the ultimate deduction from the Trinity. Of course the most glorious being in the universe is the most humble being in the universe. That wasn't in my notes. Sorry. We got to get to Herod's destru- the destruction of Herod's temple, which is like an epilogue, okay? 
And here's what I mean. If Solomon's temple, if the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians anticipated the meaning of the cross, then the destruction of Herod's temple by the Romans in 70 AD, that, that illustrated the meaning of the cross. So, so now think about it. So Jesus is, depending on when you date the crucifixion, whether you, whether, you, whether you follow the 30 AD or the 33 AD dating, it doesn't matter. The point is the same, that when Jesus Christ came, See, what John, what John the Baptist realized is that the temple's design, it was a script. It was a blueprint. It could only, and, and, and everything that the priest did and the animal sacrifices, those were all dress rehearsal. And when the lamb appeared, it was all dress rehearsal. It was all just script reading until the day that the lamb appeared, who would be the one final sacrifice who through the eternal spirit would offer himself as a man for men without blemish to God, who by that single sacrifice would make atonement for all the sins of his people for all time. When that one came, it was no longer a rehearsal, but everything the temple pointed to now, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the washing, the presence of God, it was all at the initiative of God. It was all accomplished in full. So everything that the temple represented was satisfied. And so Jesus' sacrifice and his priesthood made the temple obsolete in the way that a blueprint is superseded by the finished structure. And you say, okay, well, if that's true, Mike, then why did it take almost four decades for the building for God to destroy the building. Because when you read the book of Acts, right, the apostles and the church, they're, they're gathering in the temple courts and they're ministering in the temple courts. What, if, if what I just said was true, that if what the rest of the New Testament says about the fullness and completion or completeness of Jesus' sacrifice is true, then why did it take almost four decades for the building to be removed? Ah, I gotcha. I set you up. Because God actually didn't take four decades. God began to tear it down on Good Friday. What, again, like the Babylonians, the Romans were just, in, when they came and they burned the temple down, destroyed it, they were just involved in a, in a mop-up operation. What God had already begun. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Matthew 27, verse 51. Now you know this. You know this. So if you start at verse 50, verse 50 records the moment of Jesus' death. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So now verse 50 reports the fact of Jesus' death. And now verse 51 reports the significance of Jesus' death. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, who tore it? God. What was the curtain? Well, other than the Ark of the Covenant, this was the most important part of the temple. Because this was the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It was the most important part of the temple because what it did is it showed that there was, because of man's sin, there was this inviolable separation, this this breach in relationship between God and man that could not be remedied by men, in which God's holiness was a threat, man's sinfulness, and God's holiness could not safely come in contact. And now, think about the sequence. At the moment of Jesus' death, that veil, this most important part of the temple, God tears apart. 
God begins the destruction of the temple on Good Friday because of what Jesus has accomplished by his death. Because, you know, when that, when that veil is torn in two, when that curtain is torn in two, you know what that signifies? That means that all the rest of the temple rituals and all the rest of the temple structure, it's all obsolete at this point. I mean, if the way into the Holy of Holies is open, why do we have this building? And all of that was achieved by Jesus' death because now he is the way into God. He is the one in whom God summons his people from all the nations to gather for fellowship and worship. It's in a person, not a place. It's in a person and in every place that God summons people into his presence in Jesus Christ. Oh, the gospel is so beautiful. So now what about the raising of the temple? Well, I'm so glad that Jesus doesn't end. You know, he, in John 2.19, he says, destroy this temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. See, that there's... Thanks be to God, the story of the temple doesn't just end with its destruction. As glorious as it is, right? As glorious as what God did, uh, you know, at the cross and the destruction of the final temple. Thanks be to God that Jesus keeps going. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He's saying there's another chapter. There's another chapter that I'm going to author after my destruction. And it's a chapter that the opening scene of which is going to be my resurrection. It's the chapter that will, for my people, will never end. It's the chapter that will keep getting better and more beautiful and that you will never reach the end of. It's opened by my resurrection because it's the chapter, my friends, in which Jesus' people know him and enjoy communing with him and dwell with him as their everlasting final temple. Jesus says, I will raise it up. Notice, he doesn't say it will be raised up. He wants us to know that he will raise it up. There is a a note of triumph there, isn't there? I will take up, no one takes it from me, he says earlier or later in John's gospel, right? No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus raises himself from the dead. And why does he do that? Well, one, there are, there are two main reasons. One is to prove who he is. So, my non Christian friends, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is not, it's not just like that, you know, like I was saying earlier, that way of thinking about the Jesus' prediction about the Roman, Romans destroying Herod's temple. It's not like just some little fact out there in the future. No, but like that fact, it's an interpretation. His resurrection is the certification of who he is, that he is the one mediator between God and man, that his sacrifice is the only full and satisfactory payment for the sins of men that God will accept, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that only in him can you be reconciled to God, that he is the only Lord and Savior, and instantly and totally he demands and is entitled to your whole allegiance. So that's why either you bow your knees in the face of the resurrection or you, or you disprove it with all your might. But the one thing, the crazy alternative, is the one that you must not pursue, which is simply to ignore it. Because if you're wrong, you're wrong about everything. So he proves his identity through raising the temple up. And why does he raise it up? Just to prove his identity? No. He, he raises it up to provide an eternal shelter for his people. to be available for anyone and everyone who repents of their sins and is willing to trust in him. And the sanctuary that he provides and that he welcomes those who come to him, 
uh, into is himself. That's just so amazing. It's into a relationship. The, the sanctuary that God calls you into, my friends, is not like a spot. It's a relationship. There's a person that God is summoning you into who is willing to receive you and all that you are and is willing to give himself and all that he is to you. That's what Christianity is. It's not checking a box. You know, that's what Jesus is saying to the the Samaritan woman. He's saying, oh, if you only knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you the living water and you would never be thirsty again. And you don't have to worship. You don't have to figure out whether you need to go to Jerusalem or worship to worship or whether you can stay on Mount Gerizim. No, 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 no. The Father, I'm here because the Father is seeking worshipers. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And guess what? The reason you don't have to go to Mount Zion and the reason you don't have to go to Mount Gerizim is because I'm the temple of the Lord. You come to him through me. And the same thing is true today because Jesus is the sanctuary for sinners that God has provided. And though, friends, though we'll never reach the end of that chapter, I mean, that, the, the beauty of that chapter is going to go on forever and ever. And though we're, we're never going to reach the end of it, we do know already because of what God says to us and about us in the New Testament, we do know already how strong our security is in Christ. Because you know what's amazing? That God, not only is Jesus the final temple, but because what it means to be a Christian is that God in his grace brings you into union with Christ. You are inseparable now from Christ. Your, your life is hidden, Paul says in Colossians 3, hidden with Christ in God. That means you're in union with him. You are married to Jesus Christ. And so everything that is his is now yours. See, everything that was yours... He willingly took as his at the cross. And now, in union with him, guess what? Because he is the final temple. This is why when Paul and others in the New Testament are describing the church, they say that the church is the temple of the living God. It's because we're in union with Christ, the final temple. It's so beautiful. That's who we are now. But let me show you when we get a little further in the story where it leads because it keeps getting better. Turn with me to Revelation 21 and we'll finish with this. You know, I realize that this all probably sounds very technical and and has an intricate feel to it. And... uh, if, if that has been how it has felt, um, let me assure you that that's not a problem with the message. It's a problem with the messenger. Um, more than anything else, I, I have really longed for you to, to know and enjoy God this morning. And I want to know and enjoy him with you. And we can't know him or enjoy him without without seeing the purposes of his heart. And God's purpose in history is a temple-building purpose. And it has been from the beginning. A temple where he will dwell with his people. And if you look at Revelation 21 and verse 3, John sees at the end of history, of human history, sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And now, now what's the interpretation of that vision? Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is God narrating now. Behold. This is God laying his heart bare. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, 
And now notice this first prong. And they will be his people. We, those of us who are in Christ, we belong to him. We're his. And we'll be for all eternity. This is a covenant. This is God This is God describing what a covenant is. This is God the Father from the throne uh, describing the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and I in you. But there's another prong. Not only will we belong to him, but notice, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will belong to us. You see, he takes us to himself and he gives us himself. And that's where this is going we're dwelling together. And there's another vision of God's temple purpose. Look at verse 16. Describing the city. The city lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's like 1,380 miles. Okay? Its length and width and height are equal. Length, width, and height. He's describing a cube. A cube, each side of which is 1,380 miles. That's big. Now, you know there's only one other cube in the entire Bible. Do you know what it is? It's the Holy of Holies. 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. 1 Kings 6, verse 20. There's only one other cube in the entire Bible. And do you know what this is a picture of? This is a picture, this city where we will dwell with God, where Christ's people will dwell with him, and we will belong to him, and he will belong to us, and there will be perfect communion. This city, the the way that the Holy Spirit is picturing it is the Holy of Holies. We have, we will spend eternity, as it were, in the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, guess what? I mean, that, you know, see all our biblical, all these biblical lines, they just start to blur and they break down, right? There's just, it's just the human language can't adequately describe these realities. And all of it has been purchased by Christ. And all of it only belongs to those who are in Christ. Look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Totally surprising. Why not? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I will dwell with them. And they with me. Notice, it doesn't say the Lord God, the Almighty, and Jesus. Although that's what's being described. And you go on in verse 23... I mean, how could that be? How could it be that we could dwell forever with God and God himself is our temple, that we are in him so fully that our lives really are for all eternity, hidden with Christ in him, that we are in the most intimate of relations with God for whom we were made. How could that be? And the answer is in this word, the Lamb. If you go on to verse 23, I think it becomes clearer. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. Where does the light of the glory of God come from? And it's lamp is the Lamb. This is not two sources of light. What John is describing is that it's the Lamb. It's Jesus Christ. And it's not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Jesus Christ, the final temple, destroyed and raised up, still bearing his wounds in heaven. It's the Lamb who who went to the cross for his people, who... It's through him that the glory of God shines in its brightest manifestation. It's through this one, the cross-achieving, cross-triumphing Jesus Christ, the Lamb who takes away, who took away the sin of the world in this vision. The cross cross will be everything to us in our eternal temple. It's light 
right? Its lamp is the lamb. That means that everything we have, everything we understand in the eternal temple, every privilege we enjoy, all of it is illuminated. All of it is given to us. Everything we're able to see and enjoy and participate in, every part of it is a fruit of the cross. There is nothing we will enjoy in heaven that was not purchased for us by Jesus Christ. And the eternal temple is going to be adorned with the beauty of the cross. So friends, we need to exert ourselves now to learn as much about the cross as we can because that's all we're going to be thinking about. I mean, think about it. The eternal temple adorned, decorated with, with this with this beauty of the cross. It's, it's, it's what will reveal the glory of God to us. The cross, the cross, Jesus giving himself for his people in obedience to his Father's will and the benefits of that sacrifice being applied uh, faithfully and fully by the Holy Spirit to all those whom the Father had given to Jesus. The cross, Jesus' sacrifice, they're designed by the Father, carried out by the Son, applied by the Spirit. That is the ultimate expression of the glory of God within the Trinity. And it is also the explanation for our presence there, our security there, and our love for God. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that will be the unending source of it all, the river of God's delights that we will drink from forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to feel the gravity and the beauty more fully. Help us to be a more grateful people, more humble people, more cross-centered people. And please, Call those who are yet lost to the Lamb. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.